You'll remember how we closed the last episode with words from the Ottoman Empire's Venetian envoy, Bartolomeo Contarini, about the newly crowned Sultan, Suleiman, how regal yet meek he made the new monarch sound. While it was indeed true, as we shall see, that Suleiman was at times an inward-looking and reflective individual, he was by no means passive or timid. In actuality, he more than proved himself on multiple occasions, not just as a strong leader, but also a fearsome warrior on the battlefield, as we will see today in part two of Suleiman the Magnificent Story, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. No sooner had Suleiman ascended to the throne did he pick up right where his father and predecessor, Selim I, had left off. In his brief eight-year reign, Selim had more than doubled the empire's territory thanks to his conquest of the Mamluk Sultanate in Egypt in 1517. The spoils of that conflict added vast swathes of land to his domain, including the entire North African coast, the Holy Land, the Red Sea coast, and most importantly, the cities of Mecca and Medina in Arabia. It was the acquisition of these two Muslim holy sites in particular that single-handedly turned the Ottoman Turks into the keepers of the Islamic faith, as they now controlled all routes in and out of them. With North Africa having been secured, Suleiman now looked to Europe to continue his father's legacy of imperial expansion. He began his reign with a series of military campaigns into the Balkans, a feat that had been attempted by his great-grandfather, Sultan Mehmed II, nearly a century prior, but to no avail. At the time, these lands belonged to the Kingdom of Hungary, a mighty and formidable adversary who served as a veritable roadblock to the spoils of the continent. To proceed any further, Suleiman knew he had to topple and conquer Hungary if he wished to reach the European heartland. Thus, he made preparations to take Belgrade, a Hungarian stronghold that serves as the capital of Serbia today. With his predecessors having already defeated the Albanians, Bosnians, Greeks, Serbs, and Bulgarians, Belgrade would be the key to such prizes as the Austrian capital of Vienna and beyond. Encircling the city on June 25, 1521, and facing a garrison of only 700 men, Suleiman launched a series of bombardments from an island in the middle of the Danube River. For two months, between June 25th and August 29th, the two sides fought viciously yet valiantly, with the Ottomans ultimately emerging victorious and securing the city. Unlike other monarchs of the age, Suleiman famously allowed those who had survived the siege to go free, cementing for the first time his international reputation as a fair and just leader. With the gateway to the Kingdom of Hungary as well as Austria having been opened, one would think that Suleiman would have naturally proceeded on to Central Europe. However, he chose instead to command his attention to the eastern Mediterranean, specifically the Greek island of Rhodes, in an attempt at dismantling the home base of the Order of the Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, known simply as the Knights Hospitaller, who had been stationed there since 1310. The Sultan's first order of business was to construct a large fortification along Turkey's west coast that would serve as the base of operations for the Ottoman navy. No sooner had Marmaris Castle in the Turkish coastal town of the same name been completed did the siege of Rhodes begin. Lasting five months, it ultimately cost the Turks some 50,000 lives, while the knights suffered over 60,000. These losses were largely exacerbated by an outbreak of disease, believed to be plague, that weakened both sides considerably, yet hit the knights especially hard. Needless to say, after this lethal combination of battle and disease, the island fell to the Ottomans in the early days of 1522. Following this exhaustive victory, it would be another four years before Suleiman resumed his campaign against the Hungarians, but he would furtively return in 1526 with the Battle of Mohács. It was here, on August 29th, that the Hungarian king, Louis II, was killed in the skirmish. As the dust and smoke from the fighting settled, the Sultan famously lamented, quote, I came indeed in arms against him, but it was not my wish that he should be cut off thus before he scarcely tasted the sweets of life and royalty, unquote. 
It's in this moment that we're given our first glimpse into Suleiman's sincere, introspective nature, living up to Signore Contarini's famous description of the monarch. But while he was indeed startled, and perhaps a little saddened by the Hungarian king's tragic loss, he nevertheless remained relentless in his push towards domination in Europe. With the death of Louis II, the Kingdom of Hungary was faced with a dilemma. The sovereign had perished without an heir, and neighboring Austria scrambled to pick up the pieces of the fractured state. Its leader, Archduke Ferdinand I of the Habsburg dynasty, who was also Holy Roman Emperor at the time, had been tied to Louis II's family through marriage, and several Hungarian nobles backed him to assume command of the throne. But others weren't so keen on this choice, opting instead to support one John Zapolya, himself a member of the Hungarian aristocracy. What ensued was a scramble for power between Ferdinand's and Zapolya's factions, as the two took turns seizing control of Buda, the kingdom's capital. For Suleiman, the infighting presented the perfect opportunity to strike. Taking advantage of the political instability, he led his forces through the Danube River Valley in 1529, and himself secured the capital of Buda. From there, the Ottomans pressed on to Vienna, where they infamously laid siege to the city with a force 100,000 strong. But in a surprising turn of events, the 21,000-man Austrian force that was tasked with defending the city emerged victorious, keeping the Turks at bay in a surprising defeat from the Ottoman perspective. It was the first defeat Suleiman experienced, one that cemented that bitter rivalry that would pit Austria and the Ottoman Empire against one another until just before the outbreak of World War I in the 20th century. Battered but not broken, the Sultan tried to capture Vienna again in 1532, but the outcome was the same. This time, however, was due to inclement weather, forcing the Ottoman troops to abandon valuable siege equipment where it stood. For a time, the fight for control over Hungary stabilized, leading to a series of brief, shaky power grabs that tossed the poor country back and forth like the ball in a tennis match. But nine years later, in 1541, tensions between the two factions had yet again flared, and conflict broke out once more. For Suleiman, this was the chance to avenge his previous failed attempts at sacking and capturing Vienna. As the Austrian Habsburgs attempted to lay siege to Buda, the Ottomans swept in and took several of their fortresses. This led three years later to a humiliating treaty from the perspective of Archduke Ferdinand I and his supporters, in which he would be forced to pay a fixed annual sum to the Sultan for the lands under Habsburg control, stripping him of his title of Holy Roman Emperor, and thus making Suleiman the true Caesar of the region. With his European conquests stabilized, he turned his attention to Persia in the east. His father and predecessor, Selim I, had wanted to wage war on the Central Asian power during his own reign, but his life had been cut short before he could make the attempt. Therefore, it was now up to Suleiman to carry out Selim's wishes. His father's reason for doing so had been to subjugate the Persians' rival Islamic faction of Shia, the Ottomans were Sunni. At the time, Iran was led by the powerful Safavid dynasty, which was ruled by then-monarch Shah Tahmasp. This vast empire covered virtually all of present-day Iran, as well as Iraq to the west, and it was in this latter country that the fuse of the conflict was lit. Under Tahmasp's orders, the governor of Baghdad, who was an ally of and sympathetic towards Suleiman and the Ottoman Empire, was assassinated. In addition, the Ottoman governor of the city of Bitlis in southeastern Turkey defected over to the side of the Safavids. For the Sultan, this was just the ammunition he needed to strike, and, in 1533, he sent an army under the leadership of his best friend and most trusted advisor, the Greek Muslim convert named Pargale Ibrahim, to retake Bitlis and occupy the Persian city of Tabriz. Thus, the Ottoman Safavid War began. The following year, Suleiman joined Ibrahim and the two pressed on towards Persia. 
Much to their dismay and anger, Shah Tahmasp didn't face them in battle, but instead sacrificed territory along the Safavid Empire's rugged and unforgiving interior, a dangerous mountainous region devoid of life and resources. Still, the venture didn't prove to be a total loss, for in 1535, the pair made a triumphant entrance into Baghdad, capturing it for the Ottoman Empire. Formerly a Safavid, and therefore a Shia Muslim stronghold, Suleiman restored the tomb of Abu Hanifa, the founder of the Hanafi school of Islamic law, a Sunni Muslim ideology to which the Turks adhered, back to its rightful place within the city limits. It would be another five years before the Sultan would make another attempt at conquering Persia, but when he did, it would be to depose the arrogant, cowardly Shah once and for all. But alas, Suleiman's wish of fulfilling his father's dream never came to fruition, for his second attempt bore no fruit. Still refusing to face the Ottomans head-on, Shah Tahmasp resorted to scorched-earth tactics through the winter of 1548-49, to the kind that would famously be utilized by the Russians against the encroaching Nazi army during World War II. With no food or supplies to protect them from the elements, Ottoman forces were subjected to the harsh conditions of winter in the Caucasus Mountains that act as one of the natural boundaries between Europe and Asia. Conceding to defeat, Suleiman abandoned this venture as well, though he had successfully established a presence in such varied places of the region as present-day Azerbaijan and Georgia. A third and final attempt in 1553 also proved in vain, resulting in a treaty known as the Peace of Amasya, which clearly and decisively drew up the borders between the two empires, with the lands of Armenia, Georgia, and Kurdistan being equally divided amongst both powers. The Ottomans, however, gained most of Iraq, including Baghdad, and access to the Persian Gulf, the latter of which would prove vital in the Sultan's future military campaigns, as well as establishing trade with India and the Far East. At the time, Turkish presence in the Indian Ocean was nothing new. Since at least 1518, Ottoman trading and merchant vessels had traveled to the rich yet far-flung ports of Mughal India, where they traded their own wares for spices and other luxury and exotic goods. In fact, the Mughal emperor at the time, Akbar the Great, had established a rather amicable rapport with Suleiman, and the two monarchs remained on friendly terms. However, in the intervening years, Portugal had risen up as a veritable maritime force to be reckoned with, establishing trade routes around South Africa's Cape of Good Hope to India, China, and the riches of the East. But now, with unfettered access to the Indian Ocean through both the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf, the Ottomans were keen to knock their Portuguese competitors down a peg and restore ties with the Mughal Empire. In 1538, the Turks managed to capture the coastal city of Aden in what's now Yemen. There they established a base of operations from which they could lead naval raids against Portuguese trading ships, as well as sack Portuguese possessions along India's west coast. But these seafarers from western Iberia weren't giving up without a fight. At the siege of Diu, a municipality in the semi-autonomous Gujarat Sultanate within Mughal India, they valiantly fought back against this encroaching Ottoman navy, successfully keeping them at bay, pun definitely intended here. Forced to retreat, Suleiman and his forces regrouped at their base in Aden back in Yemen. The venture didn't prove to be a total loss, however, as the Turks, upon their return to Aden, managed to capture the rest of Yemen, including the commercially and strategically important city of Sana'a. Setting up a strong naval presence along the Red Sea, the Ottomans were able to limit Portuguese access to the maritime trade routes, leading to India, while they themselves monopolized on trade with their Mughal allies. Turkish presence in the Red Sea made Suleiman privy to other conflicts that were going on in the Middle East and East Africa. It was here in 1526, for example, that the Sultan became aware of an uprising by the Somali Sultanate of Adal against the Christian Ethiopians for control over the region then known as Abyssinia in the Horn of Africa. Ever the opportunist, Suleiman sent 900 of his own troops to fight alongside the Muslim Somalis. His reason for doing this was to increase Ottoman influence over East Africa, and ultimately absorb these lands into the empire, so that he'd have an even greater presence in the trade routes to India. 
For 17 years, the Turks fought in this conflict, only to consolidate the weakened Adal Sultanate into their own holdings in 1559. From there, it was a battle of maritime domination between themselves and the Portuguese, with frequent naval clashes in the waters off the coasts of India and Southeast Asia. With the Ajuran Sultanate of East Africa joining forces with the Ottomans by the late 16th century, the Turks' dominance over the trade routes of the Indian Ocean was more or less secured. It was in this manner that the Ottoman Empire came to be a key power player in the world of the time, and it was all thanks to Suleiman's military prowess and skilled leadership. But, as we shall see in the conclusion of his life story, he was more, so much more, than just a conqueror or expert strategist. Find out in next week's episode how he earned the moniker Kanuni, lawgiver in Turkish, by his subjects, and how the arts flourished under his watch, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. Thank you.